1: Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year.
2: And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything.
1: On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote.
2: Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point.
1: All right, Kelly, obviously, the big news, unfortunately, on our beat is the shooting last weekend in Buffalo committed by a white supremacist who appears to have been motivated by the great replacement conspiracy theory, but there's a lot to unpack there. We will be getting into that later on in the episode with our guest, Michael Hayden from the Southern Poverty Law Center.
2: That's right. Yeah, it's a very busy week, obviously, that's going on. A couple states have primaries right now where some fringe candidates are on the ballot. But I think we couldn't go without touching on a really interesting story in the New York Times this week about the crack up of a church over QAnon factions within. And it's a really interesting story because I think it gets at a phenomena that's affecting a lot of churches throughout the country where you've got a maybe normal conservative pastor and then you've got the hardcore Q flock.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting story here from The Times reporter Ruth Graham, who does a great job covering evangelicals. The story is called, for people who want to check it out, it's, as a seismic shift fractures evangelicals, an Arkansas pastor leaves home. And so she kind of pings in on this pastor in Arkansas who is what we might think of as like a George W. Bush era conservative. I'm sure this guy's extremely conservative. But he is part of this trend where pastors are seeing their flocks who were sort of like assumed everyone there is a Republican and conservative, but increasingly that any sort of nod to any kind of social justice, any kind of nod to a Black Lives Matter or treating the poor well is really being fought back against this idea that being a Christian and particularly an evangelical Christian is sort of like part of the package that comes with being a Republican and a Trump supporter, and that there's really not a lot of room for differing within that.
2: That's right. And there's this Incredible scene in this story early on where the pastor makes reference to some celebrities like, oh, you know, Oprah, Tom Hanks, whatever. It's not the core of his sermon, but some people approach him after and they're like, just so you know, Tom Hanks is actually a child sex trafficker. I mean, clearly he's not, but that is full on cute. And that's the stuff that community leaders, not even just religious leaders, I think have to be literate in these days. It's absolutely wild, but that's things that their congregates are reading.
1: I thought this was a fascinating anecdote in the piece where basically this guy is saying he's giving kind of a sort of garden variety speech where he's like look a sermon where he's saying we may love Tom Hanks or Oprah but you gotta remember like celebrities aren't your friend you gotta stick with your community and then someone's like we love Tom Hanks. We love that he's in the cabal. And so here's a quote. A young woman texted him concerned. Another member suggested the reference to Mr. Hanks proved Mr. Thompson did not care about the issue of sex trafficking. So, I mean, these are really these crazy kind of moments that happen. The overlap between conspiracy theory communities and QAnon and these kind of far-right things and the evangelical church, I think is really an undercovered one, which I was so interested in this piece. I mean, one thing that comes up a lot in QAnon circles is say say that QAnon brought them to Jesus and that they were not really Christian or really active or born again. And then they're like, oh, man, Jesus is and God is the guy taking on Comet Ping Pong and taking on Hillary Clinton. And so you imagine these people, whether it's people who are already in these churches who are getting red pilled, or it's these people who are being having these sort of conversion moments thanks to QAnon and finding themselves in these religions. It's really kind of a heady brew. And this Times article hints at the idea that basically anyone who is not either really red pills on trump or QAnon, a lot of these guys these pastors are saying this is not really what i signed up for i'm basically leaving their churches
2: yeah this reminds me because there's this really interesting stat in the story about something like 42 percent of pastors contemplating quitting and that number is way up over just the it's past great year. resignation it- they're all going to join the gig economy. And uh, <laughs> no, what it reminds me of is public school teachers who are getting burnt out as hell in the like anti-CRT era when parents will send them 500 emails and record them and put them on fringe bit shoot channels. And it it just strikes me as underpaid people trying to facilitate like a normal conversation with a community that really wants the high octane crazy shit. And like, what do you do if you are genuinely a long time pastor? You're not deep in the telegram lore and you're just not up to speed on this stuff.
1: I think this kind of hits on a, a theme that I think we're going to be seeing more this year and developing one on the podcast, which is sort of sane or people with kind of a, a connection to reality being driven out of public life. And so we think of these pastors here. You mentioned teachers. I think, especially as the midterms heat up, we're going to see this more with elections officials who are people who kind of signed up to, I'm going to participate in in the election. Maybe I'm interested in politics, but in kind of a traditional way. And then suddenly, basically sort of giving it up when they're like, whoa, these crazy people are, this is just not worth the harassment for me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably a good signpost to some of the trends that we're going to talk about in the rest of this podcast, because we've got some insurgent weirdos.
1: Absolutely. And that brings us to the Pennsylvania Senate primary. So Fever Dreams episodes come out on Wednesday. And so by the time folks are listening to this, this primary will have been resolved. But I think the rise of this candidate named Kathy Barnett in the primary really points to an increasing instability in Republican primaries and I think the electorate's willingness to really take flyers on just about anybody. So Kelly, who is Kathy Barnett and what's going on in this race?
2: So Kathy Barnett, I think in normal culture would be your garden variety. YouTube ranter, right? She's been online for ages. She's out there in 2015 promoting conspiracy theories about Muslims, about gay people, but she's a very vocal and hateful, frankly, figure online. And I think in past years, that wouldn't have been a viable platform for someone running for Senate. But in this year, she is actually this kind of insurgent candidate on the right. And she's really giving Dr. Oz a run for his money in the Pennsylvania Senate primary.
1: Yeah. So this is a case where the Senate primary and obviously Pennsylvania is a key state in terms of the Senate. The primary was long thought to be this fight between David McCormick, this businessman, and Dr. Oz, who's been endorsed by Trump. And suddenly, in the final weeks, this third place candidate who was thought to be polling in the single digits, Kathy Barnett, who up until then had been sort of treated as like, uh, oh, yeah, nice to see you, Kathy. All the candidates were very friendly with her because she wasn't really seen as a contender. All of a sudden, she starts polling in a dead tie with McCormick and Oz. So all of a sudden, both McCormick and Oz's camps, which include Sean Hannity for Dr. Oz, uh, various right wingers on Twitter, they're suddenly portraying Kathy Barnett as this great villain who must be stopped. Meanwhile, the Club for Growth, this big right wing group involved in a lot of campaign fundraising, they have a sort of a long standing feud with Trump. So they back Barnett in order to get back at Dr. Oz and, and Trump through him. So this really kind of upended the race in its final days. And What I think is so interesting about Barnett is that she has basically no political experience. She has, at least as a candidate, she's coming from this background, both as a big Christian and previously about 10 years ago, she worked in a lot of anti gay marriage stuff. She's also a black conservative. And it is of has made her career as a commentator, as one of these kind of outspoken Black Republicans. And yet, I mean, politically, there was no reason to think she had any legs. I mean, she ran in 2020, got completely blown up in the general election, lost by roughly 20 points to a Democrat. And yet, and this is notable, she refused to concede. And she started saying, my election was stolen. She hired kind of various election-denying quacks who later weighed in for Trump. And then she just kept going. She marched on January 6th. She organized several 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 buses, and now it seems like Oz and McCormick aren't really catching on with the electorate, and suddenly she's broken through.
2: It's wild to me, too, because like the mainstream GOP has really cut its legs out from under it, and how on earth it can stop a candidate that's actually too far right because so many candidates are running on this that they are the only real conservative, right? Everybody else is a rhino. You weren't at January 6th. You're not really supporting the president. You're not making these bigoted comments on bit shooter or whatever. You're, you don't have your head in the game. And so now when they need to scrounge up some kind of attack on this woman, well, she's really the direction the party has shifted in. So a lot of these attacks on her from the right have really, they've really kind of rolled off. They don't seem to be sticking because I think a lot of what the electorate wants is someone who was at January 6th, is someone who you look back in 2015 and she's calling transgender people literal demon. That like it or not, is the platform right now.
1: So the big Republican attack on Kathy Burnett has been that she's just totally out there, just totally nuts, like unelectable in the general election. But the issues are all things that the people attacking her on the right have previously had no problem with.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So, for example, she says pedophilia is a cornerstone of Islam. She has all these anti-Muslim comments. She suggested Obama was a Muslim. And suddenly Sean Hannity's like, this is unacceptable. Now, this is a guy who for years was saying, oh, Barack Hussein Obama and, and doing all, the, all these amputations. And he's saying, this is unbelievable behavior. On Monday night, he was going after her for marching on January 6th, which he otherwise would portray as a simple, peaceful protest.
2: Right. Sean Hannity was texting Trump officials during January 6th. Like He's not immune from that.
1: Right. So, I mean, they have no way to, to fend her off, essentially. And so I do think there's kind of this rise of this candidate who, it's kind of unclear to me why they don't like her, besides the fact that she kind of hasn't been approved by the powers that be. Because, for example, Doug Mastriano, who's favored to win the Pennsylvania Republican primary for governor. He's appearing at QAnon events. I mean, he's no less crazy than her, I think. And yet, really, they've decided to turn on her. And and the other part of that has been her campaign was like really weirdly shady about her background. And so she was asked, "Okay, what's her hometown? What was her supposed 10 years of military service? Can you give us basic details of that? And they said she prefers to keep her private life private.
2: (laughs) Where do you live? Don't even worry about it.
1: When did she move to Pennsylvania because it was sometime since 2018 and they said why are you so obsessed with me? That does seem to be like some weird shadiness. It does seem like the military background is real. And yet these conservative outlets that have been kind of tasked with taking her out have been really eager to suggest that there was like a stolen valor thing. Trump said, oh, her background, there's a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, not really. It's just this very weird situation where I think because she represents, and certainly I don't mean this in a laudatory way, but she represents kind of a grassroots Trumpist uprising against Trump himself and kind of the broader GOP establishment that kind of the burn notice has been put out on her.
2: That's right. And also, I think if you're a Dr. Oz, you don't want to lean too hard on the question of where do you live exactly? Because he is not exactly a hard scrabble Pennsylvanian either.
1: I think that's powering a lot of this is that people are, they're seeing McCormick and Oz as these Republican voters are seeing them as sort of two sides of the same coin in terms of the various factions of the Republican establishment have picked people for you, have picked two rich guys, and you get to choose one of them. Whereas Kathy Barnett is a pretty unique candidate. Everything else aside, she's really coming out of nowhere. And it does appear that that's kind of sparking the backlash. So I think win or lose at this primary, and we may look back at this as sort of, maybe she'll place second or third, and we may look back at this as kind of a moment that didn't continue. But I think what we're looking at is, I think for me, the story of the past, maybe 15 years, of the Republican Party has been an inability to at all fend off to the fringes, to gatekeep at all. And so I think we're seeing the rise of these kind of like more Trump than Trump candidates who don't even need Trump's endorsement, who say, well, maybe Trump's been co-opted. For me, the kind of one of the greatest moments of this, the the last couple days of the primary has been when Barnett was asked if she would support the primary winner, whether it's Dr. Oz or McCormick. And she said, I don't support globalists. So that's kind of the point of view she's coming from.
2: Amazing. Well, like you said, we're recording this on Tuesday. So it's kind of a Schrodinger's candidate right now. When this drops, we might know whether we have a Barnett or a Dr. Oz, two wonderful candidates, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it it is an issue. I think it's a trend we're going to continue seeing. And and especially, it's also funny seeing these like really randomly generated attacks where it's just like, this this lady's completely out of control. She thinks the 2020 election was stolen. (laughs) And speaking of far-right activists taking over state Republican parties, Kelly, something's going on in Idaho. Catch me up to speed.
2: That's right. So we have a great report from friend of the show, HuffPost reporter Chris Mathias, who spent a week in Idaho and I think kind of just entered what sounds like a cycle of despair, a very well-reported one. Because we've touched on this before on fever dreams, but there is a trend of far-right types moving to Idaho, immediately entrenching themselves in local politics, and driving out Democrats and, frankly, moderate Republicans. So I wanted to read some of Chris's story here because it's it's pretty alarming. He says, Democrats and more moderate Republicans view Tuesday's primaries as an existential affair. Some are considering leaving the state if MAGA extremists consolidate more power. Others are digging in their heels. The people I talked to were not all that accustomed to alarmism, which made it striking to hear some of their voices tremble when they talked about what's happening to their home. Their message for the rest of the country? It's going to get bad. The GOP really will go that far. And Chris spends a lot of time in one of these areas that racists frankly view as a future mecca for far-right politics. Among those areas is Kootenai County, where an Off the rails, local GOP has previously endorsed a Charlottesville marcher for school board, and they've also issued a resolution calling for special immigration privileges for an Austrian neo Nazi. But this piece really underscores just how bad the area's Nazi transplant problem is. It's almost like if you live in Brooklyn and all the Ohio transplants come, but suddenly they're just strictly supporting white nationalism. Chris points to a live streamer named Vincent Fox, who previously was a propagandist for a far-right street fighting group. He recently moved to Kootenai County and wrote online that, quote, if school board races go well in North Idaho, I will be running for something local there soon, and I will win easily. So, I mean, what we're
1: talking about here is, like, folks that make Kathy Barnett look downright moderate. I mean, she's kind of coming from a I think someone who watched too much Fox News maybe a little too much Newsmax background. These guys are Telegram neo-Nazis in the Idaho case. I mean, Idaho's long been sort of a dreamed-of homeland for white supremacists. It land is is relatively cheap, the population's small so you can conceivably gather some political power pretty easily. It's it's nearly all white. But what I think this story gets at is that the sense that really like there's no guardrails when it comes to Republican politics in Idaho and given that it's Idaho, Republican politics are the politics. And so you have this Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan, running this primary campaign. I mean, she had this whole feud with the governor, I believe, about dispatching troops to the border. This is like just really, really crazy stuff going on in Idaho. In this idea that pretty easily they can seize power and sort of if you win the Republican primary there, there's going to be nothing to stop you from gaining office.
2: Totally. And okay, so we were talking about people like Vincent Fox, who are wackos from, you know, the telegram wing of the channel. They're literally in fascist street fighting movements. But the far right actually has institutional power in Idaho. And you're right to point out Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan because she's running for governor and her entire tenure as lieutenant governor has been marked by just like lunacy. Like I think the governor stepped out of the state for a couple days and was like, hey, you're in control. Just don't set the place on fire. And she immediately overturned like COVID guidelines. (laughs) She recently spoke at a white nationalist conference hosted by Incel mascot, Nicholas Fuentes. So she is really kind of going the places where previously only like fringe fringe extremists went, but she's doing it with the full backing of... Idaho state power.
1: I mean, this is just sort of this example how the boundaries have just really evaporated in a lot of the Republican Party, where you think of Marjorie Taylor Greene hanging out with Nick Fuentes, or in this case, in Idaho, these guys with Charlottesville connections who are straight up white supremacists, just kind of their faction, in the local Republican Party, and people aren't seeing that as a problem. Matthias Pease also gets into the idea that, like we talked about with the pastors, it's just getting so ugly. And these people who are regular Republicans, I'm sure they're extremely conservative by national standards, that they're... They're just finding it completely untenable to run for office against these white supremacists or their endorsed candidates because it just gets so ugly. You know, you have someone who's saying this ugliness, the hatefulness and the bullying that these people are just kind of trying to grab random local offices. And they're just being just driven out because it's just really not worth the effort to be on a school board or to be on a local Republican precinct because you're just going to be vilified by all these people online.
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. And he points that there's some real cash supporting the far right here. There is a group called the Idaho Freedom Foundation. It's raked in money from out-of-state billionaires, and it gives these rankings to all the state elected officials. And Matthias spoke to a fully Republican state lawmaker. This guy is like, if he lived in New York, he'd be kind of extreme, right? He carries a gun to work every day. That's not a soft pinko commie liberal there, but he has a bad rating from the Idaho Freedom Foundation because he just doesn't go far enough. And he is getting like, he's getting bullied at work. It's hard to put it any other way. So there's just no room for even mainstream conservatives. I wouldn't even call them moderates. The gas is fully on and there's no breaks.
1: Adding into all that, then you have the militia aspect of it. You have Eamon Bundy from the Bundy clan, all of these kind of like anti-COVID measures activists. I mean, it really, I think it's an undercovered story of what's happening in Idaho. It sort of seems like all of a sudden, if we don't pay attention to this, suddenly there's going to be a senator representing these points of view, and then we'll wonder how it happened. And I think this story does a good job getting into it. In terms of the far right in Idaho, though, I do have a bit of good news. Longtime Fever Dreams listeners will remember Beartaria, the <laughs> bear-themed compound for alt-right comedian Owen Benjamin. I checked in on Beartaria recently. This was supposed to be this community in Idaho, and it does seem like Beartaria has more or less fallen apart. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's not even clear to me whether Benjamin still lives in Idaho, but the sort of camp for the the f- fans of his comedy who call themselves things like St. Augustine Bear and all these kind of whatever your ideological predilection is, it does seem like that is not going to happen.
2: Well, I think they'll need to find a new flat earth friendly commune because Benjamin is like on and off a of flat earther and he hyped that commune. It's early stages at a flat earth conference. I was at in 2019. So how the mighty have fallen.
1: So one bit of good news. We like to look for the positive things here on Fever Dreams.
2: All right. Will, who do we have as our guest this week?
1: Sure. So after Saturday's mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, I wanted to have someone come on who could explain the gunman's motivations and sort of the history of these mass shootings that have been motivated by these white supremacist conspiracy theories. So this week we have Michael Hayden. He's a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center. He has written for years about this issue, as well as just kind of a whole kind of grab bag of other Fever Dreams topics. So I'm excited to talk to him.
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fevered dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
2: Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
1: All right, this week on Fever Dreams, we have Michael E. Hayden. He's a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center and just someone who just knocks out these interesting articles on all kinds of topics covering the right and far right. Today, we have him on to talk about the Buffalo shooting and the sort of persistence of these mass shootings related to the Great Replacement Theory. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hey, well,
3: It's glad to be here.
1: Okay, so you've been tracking these Replacement Theory shootings for a while. If you could sort of sum up for us, what is the replacement theory and what kind of violence is it provoking?
3: Well, I mean, we used to know it by a much cruder name, which was white genocide, right? Like this idea that whites are being deliberately replaced or killed off in their home countries. And the origin actually comes from early 20th century writing, but then it was popularized by a fellow named Camus, who is not the other Camus. Renaud Camus, who wrote about it in around 2011, and then it was picked up at an ideal time for our white supremacists, because in the next three years after that, his writing, the so-called alt-right movement, which we, we no longer use that term to describe it. It's really a period from like 2014 to 2018, roughly, where these internet, extremists kind of got together and uh, started to collaborate to push these very type of ideas into mainstream discourse. And unfortunately, we can say they didn't succeed at everything that they attempted to do, but they definitely succeeded in this case.
2: When you talk about pushing it into mainstream discourse, who are some of the figures that are promoting this theory today in the mainstream GOP?
3: I mean, Matt Gates is one of them. We're talking about people with very big platforms, but Tucker Carlson, of course, is the one that everybody is talking about because he has such a massive audience. It's about 4 million people. And you remember Tucker Carlson as being like the bow tie guy and espousing a lot of libertarian and even neoconservative views before Trump's run. And then you had Trump kind of activating this racist right in the country, bringing this kind of previously covered up, I guess you'd say element to our politics. People in the Republican Party for a long time were putting some nice trimming around it. And Trump kind of ripped it off because he didn't have any allegiance to the mainstream figures in the party. I just want to, on those lines, just add one quick detail. If you recall, right before Trump came along, the Republican Party was putting forth people like Bobby Jindal to do counters for the State of the Union and Marco Rubio, Nikki Haley. These were the type of people they were bringing out. So they were really trying to adjust To changing demographics in the United States, which can't be helped. And Trump, of course, went in the opposite direction. And now we're in this situation.
2: So we've seen versions of this theory pop up again and again. I counted the other day, I think maybe like five, six mass shootings that have referenced this theory either overtly or through the shooter's writings. Can you tell us how this theory is working its way into killings?
3: Sure. I mean, well, The first one comes to mind, I know that you were on Gab at the same time that I was on Gab in 2017, 2018, uh, both of you, watching what we sort of all kind of knew would happen. It's just someone attacking a synagogue, and you could just feel that in the air in Gab from 2017 to 2018, October 2018, when the Tree of Life terror attack took place. And we had a guy go into a synagogue where mostly older Jewish people were and murdered 11 people in the name of of this very theory. And It sort of functions like a catch-all hatred, right? Because for somebody like Stephen Miller, who admires Camp of the Saints, which is a racist novel that really speaks to the same conspiracy theory, Stephen Miller is Jewish. So for him, other figures, other elites are the people who are replacing whites in their home countries. But for the shooter, it is Jewish people. And that is like a very big part of neo-Nazi culture, this idea that Jewish people are deliberately replacing white Christians in their home country. So we saw it in Pittsburgh in October, 2018. Obviously, the most influential one of this moment, it happened in New Zealand. That was in March of 2019. And then we had one in Poway, California, another synagogue. And then we had, of course, the one in August third, twenty nineteen, the Walmart in El Paso, Texas.
1: Michael, what are your feelings watching? I mean, you've been covering this stuff for years now, and it sort of seems like every year or so or every couple months or so we get one of these shootings and then there are like steps that are replayed. I mean, there's a manifesto, maybe it's live streamed, there's a manifesto that sort of shouts out all the earlier shootings. This seems like this cycle that sort of perpetuates itself.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, we're trying to not use the word manifesto. I mean, I am in the first draft of the story that I Wrote. I mean, I had it in there several times because that's what we're kind of culturally we call it. But I mean, this is really just a piece of garbage written by a, a sociopath. And and most of it is actually, as you allude to, just copy pasta from the document written by the Christchurch murderer. So yeah, I mean, this is a real problem that this is sort of being passed forward. One thing I, to show my age here, I do remember the era that preceded Trump and a whole lot of mass shootings that seemed totally senseless and insane. Like for example, James Holmes, I believe his name was, in Denver or around Denver, dressing up like the Joker and going into a movie theater and killing people. And I think it's just a combination of Trump unearthing this hidden monster in our country and that pre existing phenomenon in the United States of sociopaths going in and shooting people in large groups, those things kind of came together. And now you have sociopaths latching onto this.
2: Yeah, you're right to point out that these documents, they are copy copypasta. Someone did a plagiarism check on the latest one, and it's like 57% in the segments that aren't biographical, like it's really just ripped off from previous work. And so I'm wondering how these killers are coming to their ideas. Are they going back and reading previous killers' work? Are they spending a lot of time on 4 and egging each other on? How do they arrive at this insane place?
3: Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would to say is it's not thinking, it's not work, it's just bullshit, right? And I think that like, it's important to remember that it's bullshit to justify murder. And when I say that, I say like even people like Richard Spencer have said very clearly that it's like, hey, even if we bring immigration to zero in the United States, even if that happens, whites are still going to become a minority by a certain time. So it's like anybody who's done like mindfulness and meditation or whatever, one of the things you get from that is right, it's like sort of like coming to terms with the things that you just can't change, right? You just like, you can't change certain things about the world. And look, we have airplanes now. We have the internet. The world is changing. And so much of this is not so much an idea that gets passed along but a justification for rage and sociopathic behavior because these demographics are not something that people can change so where are they getting their ideas from i mean very very wealthy people run social media websites like Twitter, for example, and YouTube, and have enabled extremists to come in, use those platforms. And again, they themselves, the people who operate them may not have these feelings, but they are allowing people to come in and exploit the algorithms and things like that and sort of pull people deeper. There's been a lot of studies about YouTube and the way people will start with Tim Pool, let's say, and wind up on on Stefan Molyneux back in the day, and then wind up somewhere else and then find themselves radicalized. And these are people who Are already may have serious mental health problems coming into it and are very susceptible to that pull of the algorithm.
1: So you touched on this earlier, Michael. Draw the connection here between people promoting this this replacement theory in their screeds, their documents published after these shootings, and the way that this same kind of language is increasingly gaining acceptance within the Republican Party on Fox News. I mean, obviously, Tucker Carlson has been taking a lot of heat after this. Can you break out how, like, these really prominent figures are promoting these ideas?
3: Yeah, it's... Not exactly like confounding, right? I mean, resentment, it is worth a lot in our culture right now due to a number of factors. You could say it's like capitalism run amok, whatever your point of view might be. But certainly we can see that resentment has a lot of power in our current culture, in our polarized landscape. And people who are looking to galvanize large groups of people in this polarized, resentment-fueled landscape are dipping into this because it has this air of being something profound, like this idea that there is some kind of grievance, or at least there is a grievance out there that people want to exploit. You take somebody like Matt Gates, right? Matt Gaetz is his whole career, is soaked in scandal at this point. He's in a dead red Republican district. And for him to give voice to this great replacement stuff or to Lone credits to it, I don't know what he believes in or what he cares, but it's certainly a very effective distraction because the people who like Matt Gates don't seem to notice some of the many scandals that would have done him in as a politician as recently as like six, seven years ago.
2: Mm-hmm. So earlier before you came on, Will and I were kind of talking about the lack of guardrails on the GOP right now. It seems like there is a race to the right. And I'm wondering if anyone meaningfully pushes back on this kind of rhetoric, especially after a mass killing that really sounds like it could have come off of Tucker Carlson.
3: Well, I mean, part of the problem is there's this huge penalty for appearing to listen to someone from the other side, right? And there is that to an extent among liberals and on the left. But my God, like I think Schumer, as it is his place as a senator in New York, put forth a letter asking Fox to tone down the great replacement rhetoric or eliminate it. And you think of Schumer as like my God, hardly Bernie Sanders. But yet there is going to be a tremendous amount of pressure to show that they are not bending the knee to a person from the other party. So it makes it really difficult for anyone to get any kind of sense in there, and then anyone who does immediately kind of gets sucked into this centrist liberal blob that is represented. By by things like those investigating the January 6th attack, right? You think of people like Liz Cheney or whatever. As soon as you give enough voice of dissent to what's happening in the Republican Party, you immediately get eaten up by the middle as represented by things like the Lincoln Project and whatever else. It's really, really tough and there are not any guardrails there. And you'd have to think that there are some people who have at least, even if they're racist, have common sense to understand that one, these are things, a great replacement is not something, this theory is not something that is real. It's not something that can be controlled. They should understand that it can only lead to more mayhem. They must understand that. But yet at the same time, they have careers and that's what they're focused on.
1: To that end, Michael, I mean, do you see a way out of this cycle where it just seems like these shooters inspire future shooters and meanwhile it's getting promoted? These same ideas are getting reported to the right wing media and by Republican officials. And obviously it doesn't seem like there's any prospects for gun control anytime soon. So do you see any positive signs on this issue?
3: It, like this has been a really tough part of this, right? A really, really tough part. And a lot of my colleagues are really exhausted just going through this guy's material and things like that. It's frustrating, I think the scariest thing is the feeling that you can't control it. That being said, the things that we are advocating, we are against any kind of new domestic terror statute because we feel like that's just going to get fed into this same kind of resentment-fueled culture where people are getting exploited by the wrong people, for one thing, and it just breeds more mistrust in the government and how people handle these things. That's one. And then the second thing is to try to put more money and attention on things like prevention. It should be obvious, but some people are saying like, oh, we need to teach people not to be racist. It's like, you know, you can't do that. You can't just say like, oh, wave a hand and just be like, yeah, if you learn this, you're not going to be racist anymore. its It's really, really difficult. But however, if you focus on mental health care, I mean, this guy, I know you guys reported a little bit on his Discord. He's torturing animals, apparently. He's exhibiting a lot of signs that are red flags here. And I really think that finding these people who are not getting enough connection to the real world and who are so isolated online earlier, reaching out to them in a way that is compassionate can help reduce this. And then there's also the question of Trump and Trumpism, which as a culture needs to be defeated. And I think it needs to be defeated with something that is more definitive than just winning an election. By that, I mean, there has to be people have to be speaking up about what's happening to our country and the radicalization of a lot of people, (laughs) a lot.
2: You can't educate your way out. I thought that critical race theory was turning all the students woke. (laughs) (laughs)
3: When I say that you can't make people not racist, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. People need to understand the horrific history of racial oppression in our country. That needs to be taught. But there's a question of like whether you can you see how much resentment there is in this country. And there are people who will actually just blame white people, white men. And that feeds into the same propagandists who are radicalizing these people. So that's why prevention, mental health prevention is number one thing. And then, yeah, in a way that is compassionate and unifying, begin to teach about the racial oppression because there are a lot of black people in this country are in a lot of pain. And this guy did not see that.
2: So, Michael, we obviously don't want to blame too much of these shootings on technology, but there is this whole ecosystem of online creeps who prop up the shooter's worldview and social media companies don't always do anything about it. And that got me thinking about some of your past reporting on some less than savory characters on Twitter, especially Jack Posobiec. Can you tell our listeners who that is and what you've uncovered on him?
3: Sure. I mean, I will break a little bit of news and say that we are adding an extremist file on Jack Posobiec in the coming weeks, I think, probably. It's taken a long time because it's actually pretty close to 13,000 words. As a point of comparison, the Proud Boys extremist file, which is I think one of the most highly trafficked things SPLC has ever done, I mean, it just keeps getting brought up. I think that's like around 8,000 something as a point of comparison. Posobiec is a hard right political operative who has kind of presented himself to people as a journalist since probably about September 2016. Before then, he was uh, kind of a, a a fringe Navy figure who ran a blog called Angry Game of Thrones Fan. But during 2015, Angry Game of Thrones fan, you can find little snippets online. When you see like candles of conversations, you can piece together uh, when you go through old Twitter conversations and see that Angry Game of Thrones fan was, started to talk more with Mike Cernovich publicly, started to talk more with Roger Stone publicly, started to talk with Ricky Vaughn, who is uh, of course Douglas Mackey, a white supremacist, figures like that, Brad Griffin, who was the spokesperson for League of the South at the time. So he is this guy who, has really like, I think SPLC missed on him in 2017 by focusing on so many of these explicitly white nationalist figures, but he is a hard right figure who collaborates with neo-Nazis, white nationalists, European extremists, and is predominantly focused on disinformation. And I'm sure you guys have been aware of the amount of disinformation that immediately hit the web after this shooting took place, after every breaking news event takes place. And his disinformation follows the same pattern every single time, and I only realized this while working on that extremist file. Either he is seeking to make liberals or leftists seem more dangerous than they are by attributing criminal acts that not did not happen anywhere from pedophilia to bomb threats, as Will covered, or he is using disinformation to make it seem like something, any kind of hard right politician has not done something wrong or has achieved something better than they have. And that is basically the way he operates. And it's figures like this, I think, and can also include Mike Cernovich, who is, I think, a slightly less effective version of Jack Pozovic, who's a male supremacist grifter who who sells brain supplements online, but is also ready to anytime there is any kind of shooting or anything that needs to be spun that could potentially damage the hard right brand, people like DeSantis, Trump, et cetera. These guys spin into action and convince large numbers of people that there's nothing to see here.
1: The fascinating thing with him is this guy just, obviously a lot of the people we cover lie, But Jack like lies in these just crazy ways. I mean, he during kind of the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, he claimed, as you mentioned, that there were pipe bombs at, I believe, the Lincoln Memorial or the Korean Memorial.
3: Yes, Korean Memorial.
1: Yes, thank you. The Korean Memorial. And he sort of just, he was sketching out, it was implied, I think, that Antifa had left these pipe bombs there, and that then there was almost like this running gun battle or this attempt to apprehend the bombers across D.C. And I was standing there by the White House, and I was just like, this is clear. Really just not true I mean, yeah. this is not happening I mean and his error was, I think, making something that was could be investigated and that were there pipe bombs discovered that someone eventually would have said so. Yeah, of course. Then he said, no, no, no. like, And of course, I asked a bunch of local and federal law enforcement agencies. They said they had no idea what I was talking about. And then he claimed, oh, well, you just don't know which one it was. And the idea that the Trump administration would be covering up some Antifa bomb plot at a war memorial. I mean, yeah. just how obvious the lies
3: are. Right, yeah. I mean, like, if you think you're trying to put yourself in a position, what would like an honest, what would be a version of an honest hard right operative like this? I can't imagine one, but you'd think like maybe he would just repeatedly focus on the burning of the police station, right? And try to use that. Pozovic doesn't operate in real news stories. He is constantly looking for a way to fabricate something new. And one thing I learned while I was going into this extremist file is just like Doug, because you remember when Pizzagate happened in October, November of 2016, Zobik was not who he is now. He had a much smaller following on Twitter. He was not verified. That didn't happen until April 2017, right? So you had this guy, it's like, who the hell is this guy? And he appeared on InfoWars and was just insinuating that there was a room in which children were being escorted at 9pm at night on a weekday. Really, really disturbing stuff. And it's not surprising that like less than two weeks later, somebody comes in and fires a gun in there. It's not Jack Pazovic on his own, but he Aspired to be an actor and a performer earlier in his life. So he is very good. Well, he's not very, he's certainly not a very good entertainer, but he is very good at just detaching from reality and going into these completely fictional places. And again, people who are, who already have problems, who may already have mental health issues, they are very susceptible to it. Some other stuff, some other lies about Pazovic that are interesting. I'm missing. If you read his first book, he insinuates that he went to Wharton. He just says, I also went to the Arrestee leadership institute at Wharton and I called Wharton he didn't go there I guess he did some kind of paid leadership thing that anyone can go to but
1: people love doing that stuff they love doing like the Harvard day school or something you know for like like one
3: week if you look at regular the world that we live in I mean you can't do stuff like that without facing some kind of consequence for it people will stop and call you a bullshitter he put on his Twitter bio that he worked for CBS News for a long time he never worked for CBS News he was, he was a promotion assistant like bringing like things for parties and things like that to a conservative talk radio show that michael smconnage
2: worked at yeah he's a gift basket boy
3: yes exactly that's exactly what he was and he did this while he was at temple right so this was like his some kind of internship that he probably got either through the university or whatever. But he has been very effective at duping the most easily duped people in the country, which is, quite frankly, Trump's base.
2: And one thing that helps him dupe those people is, to your point, that blue check, right? And I think you've certainly a lot of people have brought up his persistent lies on social media and Twitter really hasn't done anything about him. Have you ever got any indication that social media companies are planning to take action against him? So
3: the impression that I've got with him is that the frontline people who I used to email with would be like, oh yeah, this looks like something, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and like you'd wait for five days and then they'd come back and they'd be like, yeah, this doesn't violate our terms of service because it's an old thing. Do you have anything other than an archive? Which is why I started to report like, hey, archived material is considered evidence in a court of law, mm-hmm. which is true. Both him, Cassandra Fairbanks, now Cassandra McDonald through marriage, they have gotten in the habits and I started reporting on them just like deleting, mass deleting tweets particularly Cassandra. I think she's wiping out everything that she does now. She's so afraid of getting suspended. But someone is very interested in keeping Kozovic on there because he has violated terms of service of Twitter more times than I think any other person. He may be arguably, I think outside of Trump, the most notorious user of that Service in the history of its existence. I don't think there's anyone who's been involved in more disinformation camps. I mean, how about this one? Think about this. We just had January 6th. Pazobic is among those people responsible for planting in trending topics the idea that Antifa was responsible for the January 6th attack. This is a no-brainer. This is not difficult. You feel like you could even get Elon Musk to get on board with it. But yet somehow they continue to enable this guy. It's really confounding.
1: Michael, one more quick question for you. You've done a lot of reporting on the Bitcoin transfers. between various right wing figures. You recently had an article about Bitcoin donations to Alex Jones. We know that cryptos are crashing all over the place. How do you think the crypto crash will affect their funding?
3: So, all right, the short of it is as long as there's still money to be made in crypto, and I have no reason to believe, based upon these huge ups and downs that crypto has had since it started to take off, that it's somehow gone for good or anything, we're going to continue to see these guys using crypto heavily. The more sort of condemned you are by a mainstream society, the more reliant on crypto you become. Because some white supremacists who may have ties with like very dangerous hate groups and things like that have trouble with their bank accounts and things like that, and they certainly don't trust the banking, afraid they could get their money frozen, and who knows what they may be involved in, right? Like there are all kinds of shady figures funding these groups, sometimes foreign sources of money and things like that. So they find themselves kind of like over leveraged in cryptocurrency and are very, very very vulnerable to these huge dips. I mean, you could imagine some white supremacists who have almost all their money in cryptocurrency, whether it's like mostly Bitcoin or some of it is Monero, this privacy-focused crypto for those who are unfamiliar that is supposedly untraceable. I will say that we are working on that, not just me, but like people who are much smarter than I am are working on figuring out how to get to the bottom of some of these Monero transactions. But yeah, like people like Andrew Anglin don't trust, he's the editor of The Daily Stormer for anybody who's unfamiliar. They don't trust the mainstream banking industry. He owes a tremendous amount of money to our clients and to others for horrific things that he's done. These guys are really, really vulnerable when it comes to huge crashes.
1: All right, well, plenty to keep an eye on. Michael, you've done so much great reporting. Folks should check it out. You're on Twitter at Michael E. Hayden. Michael, thank you again for joining us.
2: And now for Fresh Hell, our weekly segment, where we tell you about the thing that you're going to have to mute on Twitter next week.
1: <laughs> okay, great. All right, Fresh Hell. So this is something that's been brewing for a couple months, and sometimes there's something kind of sticks in my craw, and I say, it's about time we tackle this on Fresh Hell. And in this case, it would be this meme called The Current Thing. Now, if people, if this feels a little who's on first that's not an accident. Basically, folks may remember from a few years ago, the right had this meme called an NPC or a non-playable character, this concept from video games of someone who has the artificial intelligence character in a video game, someone who has no real thoughts of their own. And so this was sort of anyone who they felt were parroting the mainstream media position on this, on whatever the topic of the day was. Well, now we've seen this morph into sort of making fun of liberals or normies for caring about the current thing, and the current thing is sort of summed up as whatever is dominating the news cycle, whether it be covid or ukraine the buffalo shooting the upcoming overturning of roe v wade so there's kind of this like knee-jerk skepticism on the right we've talked recently about the new right people who are like you care about something in the news what a simpleton you are
2: I love it because it's like they've discovered the concept of linear time it's like oh you care about this now you cared about that last week and like yes things have developed oh an
1: unprecedented <laughs> war in Europe or uh, the first pandemic in modern time <laughs>
2: I'm too busy looking at my stock portfolio like it genuinely reminds me of that
1: it really is like the what a simple-minded oaf you are so nevertheless this has become a big thing in certain corners of the right uh, particularly, I would say, like, younger corners. This idea that people are kind of being directed by the media, that this is kind of blended with the MPC meme. It's also been embraced by Mark Andreessen, who's one of these kind of, like, Peter Thiele-type Silicon Valley super rich guys. And whenever something happens, he says, mm, you care about the current thing?
2: <laughs> I've been reading philosophy.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right, Kelly. And Max Reed, over at his Substacks, former Gawker editor, he had a write-up on this. The Substack is maxreed.substack.com. Kind of analyzing the rise of the current thing i have some theories about this myself and it's kind of summed up with the idea that if we think about it ideologically or sort of as an argument just saying oh you care about massive thing in the news how dumb i mean there's not really much going on from that right but i think what it is is these guys have kind of cultivated a knee-jerk skepticism and a lot of times there really isn't an obvious counter take on the news of the day i mean the invasion of ukraine for example there's not a ton you can do with it if you want to dissent from the mainstream media narrative which is it is bad to attack civilian populations or to invade a country for no reason and so you simply have to say like "Mm." it's almost kind of like a 90s slacker thing it's like oh you care (laughs) <laughs> How dumb of you.
2: Right. It is striking to me because it shows that there really is no counter argument, right? Because the default position for so many of these news items, it should be empathy, right? It should be horror in the case of Ukraine. And there's no pushback. It's like, well, I just don't care. Actually, this kind of reminds me of previous segment we were talking about where the reporter Chris Mathias reached out to Janice McGeehan, the Idaho lieutenant governor to be like, hey, I'm going to report that you showed up at all these racist events. Do you want to comment? And she didn't comment. She just went on Twitter and was like, look at this reporter reaching out to me. it's like, okay, so you don't actually have anything to say about this. You don't disagree with any of these contentions. You're just going to comment that it exists. And that's sort of what the current thing is for me. It's like just permission to completely tap out, to not care, but to do it with this really annoying, as you say kind of 90s slacker smug air.
1: There's another response to what's in the news, whether it be a mass shooting or Roe v. Wade being overturned, which is to embrace conspiracy theories and just total wackadoo stuff, right? So in Ukraine, for example, you could embrace just various kind of like, oh, this massacre was a false flag. With COVID stuff, you could say, for example, that there's snake venom in the water supply and the vaccines. But these guys, they're a little too upmarket for that. And so you can't find that counter narrative. So you kind of have to sort of declare the game over and just say caring is dumb unless you care specifically about the things I care about. This might seem like kind of an ephemeral thing, and it's flimsy. I don't disagree. And yet, I think it is sort of a stance that I think we're going to see more and more of.
2: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.